smart and we're all, all out flat. That's my question. Oh, okay. Then you it's can't all come back in and ask my question. No. Well, you know. Uh, finally, I got some good crappy material for the beginning of the episode. <laughs> Thanks to my mid-episode router restart. Welcome to the Financial Independence Garage, where we share the tools to improve your finances and unfold the roadmap to financial independence. Did you change that again? No, you haven't been on the show since I changed it. It was The Economist and I that were on the show when I changed it. I, I tweaked it just a little bit. Yeah, I could tell. Money Mechanic is here with you as usual and The Accountant. Good day. You're not even home, which I somewhat uh, disagree with, with our still semi-COVID status, but it is what it no, is. No, that's You're true. I, You're with family. I am safe. I am with family. Good to know. Good to know. Uh, special guest on the episode today is Mark Seed from My Own Advisor. Welcome to the show, Mark. Nice to have you here. Yeah. Thanks, mechanic. Thanks, uh, accountant. Uh, happy to be here and uh, looking forward to having a pint and uh, talking money stuff. Well, that's the important part. So let's get that out of the way. What did you bring to drink? Crack that open and let us know. Yeah. So um, I have a couple of breweries that are like uh, a short walking distance actually away from our condo, which is uh, both awesome and problematic because, uh, you know, so <laughs> they're saying it's uh, yeah. it's just right there. Right, guys? Yeah. Um, so I've got a Flora Hall Northeast IPA. Oh, I do like those Northeasters. Ooh. Yeah, I love the Northeast IPAs. Uh, What's the name of the brewery? That's the brewery, Flora yeah, Hall? Yeah, so it's Flora Hall. Yeah, Flora, Flora Hall. Hall. Okay. It's on Flora Street here in Ottawa. Like, if it wasn't for the buildings, I could probably see it. So, yeah, <laughs> nice uh, nice IPA, uh, great taste. Not as citrusy as your West Coast kind of stuff, but 6.5% strong ale. So, um, yeah. Oh, nice. Happy to crack that bad boy and, like I said, talk some money stuff with you guys. What do you guys got? I brought myself... A, I don't know. You guys can see this because we are doing it on the camera here. Look at the artwork on this can. We'll put this on the show notes. This is the Ghost Ship Hazy IPA from Lighthouse Brewing here in Victoria. And it is one of the coolest cans that I've seen in a while. Yeah, that's like, wow. It's, smart work. You know, you'd look at this and you'd probably go, I, I think I want that as a tattoo. You know what I is mean? That, like, they, is that new? I haven't seen that before. You know, it's not new. And I had to double check when I was in the stores. Have we had this? on the show or not because i don't drink it very often but it's a really good hazy ipa it does not have a blurb on it but uh judging by the six percent and the ship just about to crash on the rocks it's probably going to be a great way for me to end the weekend (laughs) there you go (laughs) what about you account i have the uh i've had this on the show before i have the jagged face ipa from aerosmith brewing in parksville and i have that because i am in parksville right now Okay. Right on. So I'm having having a little beach weekend with the family up here. So uh, cracked into that from the local brewery. Well, cheers, gentlemen. Cheers. Absolutely. Cheers. Mm. Very good. My ghost ship is very good. Yeah, this IPA is awesome. It's got, uh, I mean, the tasting notes here. Late edition hops and refreshing bitterness. It's got a bit of mango actually in it, which is really nice. Yeah, Ooh, I do like the citrusy. And I, and I really like that kind of tropical nose some of these IPAs have. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, we've been trying to avoid drinking IPAs on the show for a little bit because we really like them. And, of course, there's so yes. many good ones to try out here. And funnily enough, we had this interview scheduled many, 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 many months ago. And I was in Ontario, and I thought, well, what better way than to bring home some Ontario beer? So I had enough beer for the whole FI Garage, the Economist, the Account, and hopefully, you know, a similar one that you had for the interview. And <laughs> That never happened, and those beers got consumed. So here we are, all drinking different beers and all connecting through uh, online platforms. But that's the way it is now. So yeah. 
most of our listeners are probably going to be familiar with who you are and the the great writing and great work you do on your blog. But in case they aren't, just give us a little bit of your elevator pitch of uh, who you are, where you blog, and what you uh, what you discuss most over there. Yeah, cool mechanic. So uh, again, uh, I run a site called My Own Advisor, uh, MyOwnAdvisor.ca. I've actually had the site running for about gosh ten plus years now, actually, and I blogged anonymously wow. for the first probably five and change. Um, I just didn't want those worlds to collide for whatever reason, right? I was really passionate and about my day job and stuff, um, passionate about the blog, and I just thought, you know, I I, I share a lot of money stuff on the site, right, about uh, our lives and our dividend income journey and, you know, obviously uh, how we invest and why we invest the way we do. And so, yeah, I kind of decided to say, you know what, this is who I am. I enjoy blogging. It's fun. It's part of who I am. Uh, I like talking about money, investing. Why don't I just put my name and face on the site? And I, you know, I've never really looked back for the last five years or so. So yeah, I talk about uh, dividend investing, low cost uh, index investing, you know, I cover like, you know, what's good with uh, various uh, financial products, you know, why not, you know, why should you never buy mortgage life insurance, you know, those kind of things, yeah. budgeting, saving tips, you know, the whole gamut, like basically everything that I have to deal with in my life, whether it's uh, thinking about estate planning down the road, or thinking about getting uh, wills redone, I captured on my site. And you know, I learned from others, but I also learned by by doing and so I share that story on my site. And, and that's the premise of it DIY investing across the whole personal finance uh, space. So again, my own advisor. Yeah, and I find because you've been uh, you've been at it for for such a long time. When I was sort of first getting involved in this a few years ago, on my with my own journey, I found your site was just a wealth of information because I could put a search in, and you have so many articles that inevitably I would come up with that topic covered in some way or another. So yours was really one of the the first blogs that I really really read into. Uh, so it's real privilege to to have you on the show and pick your brain a bit. And it turns out that we're fairly similar in age. We're in our young forties which is wherever you want to call that in your 40s. But <laughs> we're still young. For me, we're still young. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think, you know, our our st- investing strategies are similar. And I think one of the things that is we should talk about a little bit that perhaps doesn't come up a lot in the community, whether it's, again, let's not get into the argument of what FIRE is or financial independence or things like that. The fact of the matter is that many of us are going to be facing drawdown before traditional retirement age. And that's going to look different for everyone. And we can probably, we'll, we'll start this episode with our usual saying, this is for entertainment purposes, and this is our opinions. And please <laughs> <Yes>. don't, uh, <laughs> it's not advice. We're not here to give advice. And it is going to be very personal. And one of the things that makes that interesting is whether you're going to have pensions through work, which you do, and you've written about. So I think we should dig into that a little bit and see how that challenge is, is going to work out for it. And we're all going to be basically wanting to work on our own terms or be semi-retired or be financially dependent or be fire, right? I mean, that's that's our goal, right? Yeah, I mean, um, I, you know, the whole financial, I mean, we don't want to go down the rabbit hole, but the financial independence. <laughs> um, I want to poke you a little bit because you've been, you've been using fire on your blog a lot more often. I have, you know, and I've been writing about it a little bit more, but I, but I'm really focused on the FI part and I love the yeah. FI part. I love, I've always loved the make some money, save some money and over time grow the gap and invest that money so that that money makes more money. Right. Like mm-hmm. that's something yeah. that I was uh, taught at a, you know, kind of a, a fairly young age. And, you know, I started investing in my early twenties and then, you know, my path to 
where I am now. I, you know, I, I invested in high price mutual funds, unfortunately, like probably many Canadians did and Americans did and, and the list goes on and on. But I kind of had a eureka moment like 10 years ago around when I started the blog. It's like, you know, there's a better way to invest. It's it's through, um, you know, low cost investing. It's, it's you know, DIY investing like I've, I've taken on. And, and, you know, I gravitated the whole five piece because, you know, what a great concept. You know, you're, you're basically putting money in the bank. That money is making money. You're, you can potentially become financially independent and then you can totally work on your own terms, right? So if you want to continue working full-time and you love your job, whether it's a, 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 you know, a mechanic or an accountant or, you know, whatever the role may be, keep doing it. But if you don't want to do that and you want to work part-time and your wife wants to work part-time or you want to volunteer more or you want to travel or whatever, to me, that's the beauty of FI is it does provide a lot of financial flexibility. And that's what I'm really craving for. And that's why I've been on my, you know, kind of an ardent path to be, to be FI not because I want to leave my current job or leave, you know, my employer, it just provide me with so much possible financial flexibility. And so this whole um, FI, or as I call it kind of FI woot, you know, working on your own terms. Um, I think that's great. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, there's a lot of other people that are on that same journey. And then I'm, I mean, for those that are on it, kudos to them. Yeah. I think it's uh, the financial security that comes with all of it and the options that you have when you have that security to be able to chase after the things you really want to do is so key. And so many people miss that. Yeah. I mean, the, the beauty of FI is that, you know, you, you work because you want to, not because you have to, and you're not really relying on an active source of, you know, income from your job. You know, it could be part of your travel fund. Again, you may be able to have extra time to donate to causes and, and do other things that you've been putting off for years because you've been building, busy, you know, raising a family or buying a house or trying to get settled or whatever the case may be, right? So, you know, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the FI just because, you know, make money, save it, uh, keep some of it for yourself, invest wisely, rinse and repeat, and um, you'll absolutely get there. And everybody has their own path. I've always said, you know, the beauty of personal finance, whether it's my site or, you know, FI Garage or anything else, you know, the beauty of personal finance is it's personal, right? And so while, you know, people may have a pension like me, or they may not have a pension at all, you, you can really carve out your own path. And I think that's the beauty of all this personal finance stuff is no, no two plans need to be the same but there's a lot of similarities in terms of how you get there. Yeah, absolutely. Did knowing that you have a defined benefit pension change your approach for investing and saving? Yeah, a hundred percent account. I mean, I learned early on that, and again, this is my thesis, but I, I considered my fairly secure through, you know, various um, collective agreements and such. I, I've, I've considered my, my pension a big bond, if you will, right? So that's a bit of fixed right. income that's kind of sitting there for me later on in life or, you know, maybe as early as 55 to with early withdrawal penalties and the like. But I've always considered that a bit of a big bond. And I came to that realization, you know, many, many years ago. And when I did it did help me gravitate to, to really owning more equities. I think I have a few posts on my sites where, you know, I would encourage not just because if you have a pension or not, but you, you probably want to learn to live with stocks or equities. And I mean, equities as in, you know, index funds and a collection of stocks or what have you. And the reason I say that is because that's where your growth component is going to come from. Right. And so while fixed income is very good, in the form of a pension, that doesn't mean you shouldn't be thinking about investing in, in mostly equities, especially for someone in the 30s or 40s and maybe even 50s. Have a bias to equities, have a bias to a basket of stocks, because that's where your growth component is going to come from. 
um, over many years of investing. You know, cash will only get you so much in an interest savings account. I wouldn't even say high interest savings account because high doesn't exist anymore. It's more mediocre yeah. savings account. Nope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I think for those that have a pension or even a defined contribution, you may want to look at that as part of your total portfolio and think about, you know, uh, having a little bit of a bias. Um, doesn't mean you shouldn't own bonds in your personal portfolio, but have a bit of a bias in your growth asset accumulation years towards equities. I think you're going to you're going to fare much better. So, yeah, totally accountant. I mean, it did shape how I invest and it continues to shape how I invest today. Now, as you get closer to a traditional retirement age, the we won't go into the traditional investing wisdom that shifts our exposure from equities into bonds because you've got that DB and say you, and you know, we can even get into talking about how we're going to have CPP and things like that. And that could be looked at as a bit of that, you know, from your quote unquote bond component that because of your DB as well. So are you going to maintain, you've, you've got a large portion of dividend income already, uh, which everybody can read about. It's great. You do updates on that all the time. And, and congratulations, by the way, your progress is doing fantastic. You're going to have that. Are you going to keep all that equity exposure through the long term because of those, uh, the DB and CPP and things like that, that you consider your bond exposure? Yeah, uh, totally mechanic. I think I'm going to, you know, unless something really changes my my thesis, I'm probably going to be mostly equities, i.e. 100% or, or pretty close to it. We can talk later on about how much cash you should keep in retirement and some of my other strategies, because uh, I, I do have some thoughts on that, but, you know, basically having a larger emergency fund um, and self-insurance, you know, for various things. But yeah, I, I can't see myself going too far below 90% equities in the coming decade or so. I think I think I'll probably be there, um, give or take with my portfolio because of those reasons, right? Like CPP, you know, knock on wood, it's going to be there for a long time. It's yeah. a contributory plan, right? Yeah. So, you know, people pay into it and that's kind of a golden goose that people really don't want uh, impacted in their retirement, whether they're aspiring you know, uh, financially independent folk like us in our 30s and 40s or, you know, people in retirement, you know, don't touch that thing. OAS is a bit of a different beast in that it's, you know, it's paid out from general tax revenue. So there will, I could see tweaks occurring at, you know, OAS. You remember maybe years ago, it went from 65 and then to 67 and then, yeah. was, you know, demographic shifts and so on and so forth. And then they pulled it back to 65. So I could see the government of the day playing around with OAS Totally. Yeah. CPP is is that fixed income kind of future bond component that most Canadians should always rely on. And, you, and as much as I don't like to think about, you know, leveraging that income as part of my personal plan, because I'd like to have enough dividend income or withdrawal strategies to to not worry about CPP, I, I, I want to factor it in just because it, it plays with the asset allocation that you talked about. So I think it's an important piece for people to, to mull over with a fee-only planner or, or DIY like I'm doing. You know, one of the interesting things about that that you pointed out there is that so many people that are starting this journey in their 20s, which is fantastic. If they're already looking Absolutely. into how to become financially independent in their 20s, they're going to make it there regardless of CPP, which is awesome. But the one thing that I think about is, A, they may not accrue enough time it paying for CPP at maximum wage earnings, nor may they accrue enough time with a DC or DB pension to have a lot of impact at 65. I kind of see that as one of the downsides of this super aggressive push to get to your magical 4% uh, in your 20s and retire early in your 30s. It, it could potentially pose a problem later on. I think one of the things that we are both very lucky to have is 
I've personally contributed a lot into the CPP mm. during my working years. And like you said, you know, all things being what they are, uh, we will have access to that. We'll have the privilege of getting that later on in life. So one of the concerns I have about this really, really aggressive, quick fire thing is that later on, you won't have access to those programs that we all pay into. So anyway, no, don't need a big comment on that. It was just something that I've thought about for, for people. Yeah, totally. And I think if you're going to retire early, you got, you got to think about, you know, the, your racetrack, right? What do you got to deal with, right? There's going to be yeah, lots yeah. of things that are potentially going to pop up. So, you know, retiring at 65 or coast five or, you know, whatever you're doing, you can talk about all those things, but certainly retiring later in life and having maybe, you know, less time in retirement, it actually reduces some of your personal, you know, financial risk in a lot of ways, right? If you've got a long Absolutely. racetrack in terms of being a fire, you know, young 30 or 40 something, I mean, at the end of the day, you're probably going to work again, whether you're you know, doing a podcast or a blog. We're not allowed to say that. <laughs> writing a book or whatever. Yeah, but yeah. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I think people are going to get really bored really quick in their 30s or 40s. But that's just my thesis. Everyone's different. But yeah, you got to think about the racetrack. You got to think about what's going to happen with your health and other factors. And, and um, in any event, I think it's just something that folks want to mull over a little bit more than maybe they, they thought. Yeah. So considering we're in our 40s and we we are thinking about that because at some point in the next five years, let's call it, just throw a number out there. I'm not pinning yeah, yeah. down anything and I'm not pinning myself down. I've, I've, I've openly admitted that I've embraced Coast Fi and uh, by my calculations, uh, that should work out for us for a technical traditional retirement. Although I think one of the things I noticed is that we're all very, very bad at understanding compounding and actually how quickly <laughs> money can grow, especially in good markets. Let's put it that way. And, yep. you know, diversifying into real estate and other assets. But what are we going to do or what's your plan for when you become, quote unquote, semi-retired? You've got uh, a pretty impressive dividend income. Your goal is 30K a year, if I'm not wrong. And then what are you going to do when you subsidize that for those years before you either draw early on your pension or, uh, you know, how, what, what do the buckets look like? What's your plan for that? Is it, how are you going to draw that down? Yeah, that's the $64,000 question really, isn't it? Um, I would isn't say, it? Isn't, it? isn't it? That's why I asked. <laughs> isn't it? Or, or $640,000 question or whatever. It's a lot, right? No, it's, I mean, man, um, like I said, like, or I guess at the onset, you know, and, and you mentioned it, like, you know, I'm fortunate to have a, a bit of money paid into a, a defined benefit plan and that, and that's great. So that's, the, that's the bond component. And I'm not really worried about that. Um, my wife has the DC plan. So the defined contribution, again, um, contributions are, are known, but the end, end game is not. So, you know, what are we going to do with that? Um, our thinking is if we can get to about 50 ish, you know, in a few years, and if I can get to that magical 30K, and that 30K is actually our taxable and our TFSAs. It's not even including our, our RSP assets, which is which is good. Fantastic, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, we've, right. been, we've been really good savers over the years. And, and I've kind of had that 30K goal because, you know, tax-free money is great. Uh, it's better than taxable. But oh, I yeah. figure, you know, yep. whether, I, whether I draw down the TFSA or I draw down the taxable, and then I draw down some of the RSP at the same time, maybe I leave the pensions mechanic and accountant for 55 or 60, right? That That's money that's fixed income and not fixed in terms of, you know, just uh, from the from the potential income stream I'm talking about or an asset allocation. I'm talking about the fact that this is money I can actually count on and I can potentially draw down my personal portfolio. So from an investment risk perspective, 
I have a little bit more flexibility in drawing down my RSPs or pulling money out of our taxable, moving the taxable into the TFSA. Uh, again, tax-free dividends are awesome. So I have I have a lot of flexibility to play around with. Well, maybe I only want to draw down my RSP a little bit, and maybe I take my pension a little bit early because, you know, I can I can defer CPP till sixty five or seventy, right? And so I'm going to have a lot of yeah. buckets and things to move around. I it may become a bit of a tax issue in terms of trying to keep away from OAS clawbacks, but honestly, I have said it so much on my site, and I, you know, I'd say it here is that. You know, for anybody in their 50s and 60s, if, if you're worried about the OAS clawback coming up, um, as long as you have your health, this is an amazing problem to have, right? Yeah. That I, means I would love to have that problem. Exactly. Sign yeah. me up today. So I think the thing is, is, you know, by investing in a, in a taxable account a little bit now, since our TFSAs are maxed out, our RSPs are, are thankfully maxed out as well, it's going to give me some buckets to play with. Yeah. Um, so that's the game plan. And, and I, I think my thinking is, Maybe I draw down the RSPs first. Um, I'd have to run some numbers and scenarios. I'll probably keep the TFSAs quote until the end because mm-hmm. again, it's tax-free money that's compounding yeah. away, and it, you know it's it's excellent for estate planning. And I have a couple articles on my site about that. And then again, like we talked about, you know the the pension or CPP and OAS. I mean that's an that's indexed uh, protected, right? CPI uh, consumer price index. It's protected, so you're going to get a bump every every little bit, sometimes quarterly. Um, on some of these programs, and you're going to be able to keep some of your cost of living up with with inflation, right? So it makes sense for folks that may be retiring uh, early or semi-retirement, I would say, should say, like I want to do in my 50s, probably a bit of part-time work, draw down the RSP a little bit, think about deferring the CPP and OAS, and, and, and that way you've got a really good mix of all these income streams. I think, I think it's a smart way to go. Right. Take just just take ten seconds. There you go. He picked up his beer. I was gonna say he looks like he's thirsty. That's a lot of talking about. <laughs> he did a lot of talking. So I need a, a lot of talking to, for a blogger. Us yeah. podcasters are yeah. used to just talking and talking. <laughs> See how much beer I drank because I'm just I'm used to drinking it while I'm talking. Yeah, you know, there you, you go. Need to, you need to hydrate on these podcasts. <laughs> hey, you gotta well, stay think, hydrated. That's important. Yeah, I think you you made some great points there and. You know, as we preface the show with, it's going to be different for everybody. And I think a lot of people look at their RSPs and don't want to touch it because of that tax free growth and the compounding within it. But the time that you have before any other benefits kick in is when you can actually control some of your income and therefore control some of your taxes. So depending on your situation and what may be coming down the road, for me personally, I think the same way is those semi retirement years, I'll say, where I am technically controlling my income is when I'm going to want to use chunks of that to to subsidize my annual cost of living where I can make sure I'm paying. I'm actually getting the tax arbitrage that I wanted from the beginning when I put it in at, at high earnings, right? So that's I think that's a really well well said. Yeah, that's, yeah that's exactly. A, it's a super way to go, right? It's it's a it's a great tax deferred vehicle and if you can put money in in your higher income earning years and pull it out in your lower income earning years, you're, you're taking full advantage of why this account was designed in the first place for Canadians. So I, I think it's smart. And whether you choose to do it in your 50s or your 60s, or you wait till you turn into a RIF or annuity or whatever you want to do at age end of year 71, it's, it's a beauty of account. I think one of the things that I have seen, though, is people get to 71 and are in a, a tax position that they have no control over, especially if they have some sort of workplace pension at that point. And I mean, 
don't get me wrong. It's a fantastic <laughs> problem to have. Like we're, let's, let's just say these are great problems yeah, to have. Absolutely. I think one of my favorite quotes was the economist one show. He said, if I have to wheel up wheelbarrows full of cash to the CRA every year when I'm 70, I'll be happy. Cause that's a good problem to have. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, that's, that's totally want to minimize, and, but yeah. Yeah. And, and the, and the accountant would know this, you know, for, you know, probably better than, than than both of us but you know it's all about flexibility in my opinion right you want to design your your retirement or your summary retirement around options and i think having options in life is always a great thing yeah you may be doing some hand rigging on some of the decisions and maybe for some people with higher net worth they've got um you know some taxation and cra coming and knocking on their door um, but even if you're a modest or lower uh, income, you know, think about income streams. Think about what those sources of income could be, whether it's part-time gigs, side hobbies. Maybe you love woodworking and, you know, you can make uh, some Adirondack chairs and sell them in the summer. Yep. I mean, you know, it's all to me about financial flexibility. And I think if you can think about, you know, your life in terms of, you know, what kind of options would provide me with the most financial flexibility and align that with your values and where your family wants to be and so on, you're going to be a much happier person at the end of the day. Now, I was going to say that I think you have to hit the nail on the head with the flexibility thing because the multiple income streams, A, flexibility can provide you with protection. If assets are down, you have different things to draw from, but it also helps on the tax front. I have a lower income year. I can pull out of you know, a registered account and ha- you know, it'll bump me up a little bit, but I'm in a lower tax bracket this year. I mean, the whole thing is about flexibility, isn't it? At the end of the day, it's the flexibility to do what suits you best at any given time. It is, yeah, and I, I think that's where I've I've gravitated to dividend paying stocks a little bit. Account is in that, you know, there is the dividend tax credit for folks that don't know when you invest in a taxable account. Um, you know, the government is is basically providing a, a nice incentive to invest in Canadian corporations. Um, you don't get the same uh, kickback from from U.S. stocks. Or again, uh, for folks lucky enough to get into a Shopify, you know, dividends aren't everything, right? Um, return matters, and so. You see companies like this taking off, and those are great fits for a taxable account as well. And where I'm going with this is that, you know, if you're if you're saving for your TFSA, awesome, tax free. I think is is the number one thing to do for any income level. RSPs are great for higher income earners, so you know, nail knock that off next. And then if you're fortunate to you know have a side hobby or do ever whatever, and you've got part time job in your future, and you want to invest in a taxable account, think about dividend paying stocks because of the tax credit or, you know, just stocks that don't pay any dividends at all. And you're, you're hoping for capital gains because those capital gains are a very efficient form of tax. And the accountant would know this again, inside and out, but, you know, think about while asset allocation is really important, asset location is important too, right? Where you put what. And so, you know, as you get a little bit more savvy, maybe with your investing, or you want to talk with your fee only advisor, have those conversations about, you know, what assets should go, what location, because it will make a difference and it will provide you with that financial flexibility that we're talking about. Yeah, that's a really important one is asset location is is huge. And I think to be honest with you, I think we're bad at that in the accumulation stage. But by the time you get to the drawdown stage, you need to kind of have that dialed in because you want those things to be the most efficient. So speaking of the drawdown, one of the articles that I really like that you wrote because what's the number one thing you hear about from FIRE or FI blogs and podcasts? 4% withdrawal rate, 4% withdrawal rate, 4% withdrawal rate. Should I say it again or what? Like, let's not even get into what we think about the 4%. Let's talk about, and I know, and I know you didn't come up with it, but I thought your write-ups on it were really good. And you have some nice illustrations on there and you did like a little personal case study. So it's called the variable 
percentage withdrawal rate. You want to give a quick summary on what that is for us, Mark, and then we'll dive into it a bit? Yeah, for sure. So the thesis of that is, um, unlike the 4% rule, which kind of assumes a constant withdrawal rate, albeit it's kind of factored in inflation, right? So over time, mm-hmm. you, may, you may withdraw 4 and then 4.1, 4.2. What I like about variable percentage withdrawals is just focus on the variable part. That is, you know, you can take as much money potentially as you want out in, in good years uh, within reason. So maybe you bump it up to 5 or 6% in, in a great year. But you also ratchet it down a little bit in, in not so good years. So variable percentage withdrawal really allows you through various calculators, formulas. And again, there's there's um, a post on my site, as, as the mechanic alluded to. Um, if you, uh, you know, do a Google search as well after you're reading my site or my article, uh, based on the case study there by, you know, one particular reader that, you know, espouses this through and through, you can find calculators free stuff out there and you can throw in some numbers, you know, how old are you? Um, how long do you want your portfolio to last? And and what it'll show you is, you know, basically a withdrawal strategy based on the percentage of, of how long you want that portfolio to last. And again, the thesis of that is, you know, based on an end date and kind of working back, you can you can basically spend a little bit more in the good years and you just have to ratchet it down in some of the bad years. But it really blends, in my opinion, the best of kind of constant dollar withdrawals with a percentage withdrawal strategy. And so, you know, the 4% rule, it's a nice rule of thumb. That's fine. But again, we all know personal finance is personal. And so having the variability, i.e. flexibility in your withdrawal strategy makes the most sense. And so um, I would encourage people to check out, you know, Boggleheads, Google, you know, variable percentage withdrawal. Like I said, check out the article on my site because it will give you some insight into why that strategy is probably far better than any rule, uh, 4% or otherwise. Yeah, I think for me now in reflection, I would call the 4% rule a target for your accumulation phase. Mm-hmm. And I'd call the variable percentage withdrawal strategy something that you're actually going to sit down and work with for the realities of what your withdrawals are going to look like. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you've, you, I think you've nailed it, Mechanic. I mean, think about variable, not just because that's what you want to withdraw, but life life happens, right? You're going to want to go and do some fun things probably in semi-retirement or retirement. And the accountant's, you know, nodding his head uh, incessantly here, but it's like, you know, life happens, things change, right? <laughs> maybe you want to have a big exactly. trip. Okay, well, maybe we're gonna, maybe we're gonna take an extra ten k, and we're gonna spend a month or two in Australia or New Zealand, or buy a boat. Buy a boat, right? <laughs> throw throw a bunch of gas in it. I don't know, like you know, but I, I think that's the thing that people need to think about is life is variable, and so by having a withdrawal strategy that lines up with the reality that life is variable you're not set in stone in terms of pulling something out. And, you know, when you think about the 4% rule, other rules, if you go hard and fast in that, yeah, you could probably last 30 years or even more, but you actually may end up with an estate that's much bigger than you ever wanted to. And that makes no sense. Yeah. No sense to me, right? I mean, you've been saving money and you've been doing things all your life to enjoy. So why not enjoy it? Why not use a variable strategy to draw down the portfolio and make sure that you're you're reaping the kind of the fruits of your labor by socking all this money away. And if you want to leave an estate, and that's part of your generational wealth plan, well, I, I mean, I'm all for that. But other, but again, personal finance is personal, and and not everyone's created the same. And so I think the variable approach makes a lot of sense for a lot of people. Well, and that's just it. Is as much as I forget what the exact numbers are on the four percent rule, but it's you know if it's twenty five times over thirty years, like. There's a 98% success rate, but there's also another like 30, 40% of the time that you end up with double the money you started with. Wouldn't you want to spend some of that? 
That's the thing. I mean, if, if you're following some sort of rule of thumb like that, the reality could be that you end up with two or three X what you started with. I mean, if, if that's part of your plan, that's okay. But the reality is, is, you know, a lot of people following a very low withdrawal rate, I would say starting in their 50s and 60s for sure. Again, if you have a long racetrack like a, a early retiree, you've got to think about maybe ratcheting that withdrawal rate down to three or three and a half or whatever. Yeah, I mean, you've saved, invested this money to use and enjoy. And I think, you know, this is the time to do it. You know, one of the things I think about is that the community that are probably paying attention to this and that we're involved with personal finance and financial independence is they are learning. We're all learning how to pay attention to our finances. And just because you're become, get into the drawdown phase, you're still going to be paying attention to all of those finances. So you're not going to go, oh, we should just blindly take out the percentage we need this year. You're going to look at how the markets have, are reacting. And I'm not saying you're going to look at your finances every single day, but you're not just going to blindly do it. So the variable percentage to me makes sense because you're going to be constantly making adjustments on the fly. And one of the things that I don't like is people ex- think that things are going to happen all of a sudden. You know, like what we've just gone through at the beginning of 2020, we've all had to adapt, we've all had to change, but it hasn't blown up anybody's portfolio or anybody's plans. You, you make adjustments, right? You change your course and, and you move on. And that's where I really like the theory of this variable percentage. Yeah, I I've, I've, I try to mention this uh, mechanic on my site a lot. Plans are good, but it's the process of planning that's important, right? So, And who said that? <laughs> I, I pulled that out uh, because I love the quote. Is that, is that Eisenhower maybe or something? I can't remember. It's probably... Oh, yeah, I have it. I have it. I, where's the document? <laughs> this is how good I am when I'm podcasting. I don't oh, even have a document. You. I did look it up. I did. It was a quote. It is Eisenhower and it is, plans are worthless, yes. but planning is everything. Yes. And I, and I love that quote. I hadn't heard that specifically before and I love it. Yeah, I, I gravitate to that and I kind of, uh, you know, leveraged it to kind of, you know, say what I said there. But it's the process of replanning that's really important because you got to make course adjustments. And, you know, over a 20, 30 year, or if you're semi-retired, 40 year retirement, whatever your lifespan may be, and hopefully, you know, everyone has their health and happiness throughout, I think it's really important to, to get into a framework where maybe, you know, twice a year or something like that, you're kind of adjusting and readjusting your plan, right? You're going to see what the market's doing. You're going to see where your your bond or your fixed income is, is, is going. You're going to see what the equity market is doing. You're going to see all these environmental stressors and factors, you know, uh, unfortunate COVID or otherwise. You, you're going to see these things, right? And so it'll allow you to make some course corrections along the way. And I think, you know, ultimately that's that's what you want to be able to do is get into the habit of working through your own plan and re you know replanning and reprocessing that and and find your own cadence about what works for you. That's going to be a really important enabler for you um, in any job in any sort of you know uh, financial situation that you're in. You know, get get try to get good at, at basically replanning. I think that's a really good valuable life skill. Yeah, we had uh, an episode with Peter Gallant about the risks of fire. And one of the things that he talked about was, you know, retire every year. So every year you're taking a look at your whole situation, take a holistic view of your life and your finances, because I think we agree on a fundamental level about that too, is you need to enjoy your time here as well. And it's not until you get into your 40s that there's some unfortunate, unfortunate things that happen to friends and family. And you're kind of like, hey, uh, I need to make some, have some balance in this. And that's why personally I've chosen Coast Five so that I can get a little bit of balance. It doesn't have to be that super hard push for the financial. So anyway, uh, with that said, 
Here's the hard question of the episode. Bring it. Do you want to have another beer or not? No, sure. that's not it. <laughs> you know what? The hard question should have been, do you want to switch to scotch? <laughs> hey, we could. I, You know what? I got some bourbon actually uh, around the corner, some Elijah Craig. I don't know if you've had that, but that thing is, uh, that stuff's high test. It's very good, but I think it's on the borderline of like 65%. So you got you to gotta pace yourself and just draw yourself a little dram and enjoy it for half an hour, an hour. Don't, don't, don't have that one too quickly. Yeah, well, we'd have to have Jordan Mass on the show for that. He's he's the bourbon aficionado. Yeah, he likes his bourbon. He's uh, he's always posting uh, pics of uh, the collection, and I see it on the you know the Twitter machine and stuff like that. And there's a bunch of people that like their crafty beers and uh, IPAs yeah. like you and I do. So yeah, it's all it's all good. You, to your point, you've gotta you've gotta live your life and have some fun. I mean, coast fi otherwise, whatever journey you're on, you know, life is really too short. Um, and you start realizing that in your forties, um, unfortunately it you know, takes you a little time to, yep. to let it percolate in the brain, but ultimately, um, life is short and you need a balance and saving and investing is all fine and good. And, but, um, there's family, there's friends, and there's other things beyond personal finance that you really need to enjoy in life. Before we start wrapping up here, I do have a question for you regarding the pensions. And you mentioned you've got, you personally have a DB pension, which for listeners, if they're not fully aware of what that, that is defined benefit. So you're going to have a defined payout depending on your highest income years and the number of years you at your workplace. And the defined contribution is the, you're contributing every year and getting an employer match, but they're investing it. And depending on how well those assets do, you're going to have a payout when you choose to take it. So my question is, I, well, first of all, I think I got those fairly correct. Yeah, you're spot on. <laughs> okay, good. Whew, I, I told you I've been reading your site for a while. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> no, my question is, I've had a few listener emails and people are always asking about what about commuting my pension when I'm, you know, in my 40s or 50s? And we did do that with my wife's. Uh, she had a DC defined contribution pension for it was a just five years at a company, so it wasn't a large amount of money. But we were early in our 40s. We figured we'd take control of the investment. So I just want to get your thoughts on commuting a pension and whether you've considered it for yours. Yeah. So uh, awesome question, by the way. I think for anyone that has. DB plan because there is the commuting factor, right? I think what you need to think about is obviously time in the plan, right? So is it five years in? Probably not really worth staying in the plan and keeping that, you know, on, you know, with the with the pension uh, manager for years on end. And the reason I say that is because, you know, by low cost indexing, you could probably return, you know, give or take something very comparable to what that pension plan is returning. And maybe you actually commit a little bit ahead just because you don't have the administrative overhead associated with running that that plan. So by going with an all-in-one balance fund, VBAL, XBAL, they're out there, 60-40 equities, right, bonds, you could probably do just fine over the next coming decades by just leaving it alone, putting that money, commuting it, and putting it there. I would say if you're 25, 30 years in, there's a benefit of keeping it in the plan. Because again, you can treat that like a bond and you're much closer to retirement age anyway. And any any market fluctuations between, let's say, late 40s or 50s, and when you actually start drawing on it, there's some risks there. So why take on that risk? So that's kind of my thinking around it is if you're only a couple years into a plan, you've changed employers, I would seriously look at, you know, if it's a DC 
putting it in a lira, putting it in low cost indexing funds, and and just leaving it alone, right? Because again, mm-hmm. you're probably going to mirror very closely what that pension plan may be running, give or take, you know, uh, fifty or basis points or something like that. Yeah. If you're much closer to retirement, I would say you may want to consider keeping it there. But again, a lot of things depend on that, right? It depends on mm-hmm. your personal mm-hmm. portfolio. It depends on, are you comfortable doing it yourself investing or with a portfolio manager or moving it to a robo-advisor? So there's a lot of other things you can think about. But I think longevity in the plan and the security of the plan is important too, Mechanic. You want to think about the viability of that plan. Is this employee only? Um, is this a Nortel plan? Um, or or Shopify plan. I don't know. Right. So you (laughs) may want to think about those things, but if you're, if you're affiliated with, you know, major collective agreements, whether it's Ontario nurses association, you know, I'm just using that as an example, but you know, basically a a huge portfolio of, of people and, and uh, administration um, associated with that, the size of the pension, that makes a big difference in terms of viability, at least a forecast long-term, it should be around. Mm Mm-hmm. So anyway, I, I would say think about those, but those are my factors: is, is time in the plan and security of the plan. Those are those are kind of two one one two punches. I would definitely think about. So from your point of view, with your existing plans, you haven't considered it as an option. You've had enough time in that it's worth keeping, and you feel that's the best position for you. I think so. I think I think my thinking is I may just leave it in the plan if I decide to do semi-retirement. And my biggest decision is when do I draw on it? To be honest, mm-hmm. because- yeah, exactly. You know, if I've got 25 years in and, in, you know, a number more years or what have you, or, you know, uh, should be crossing 20 in a couple years, it may be worth just keeping it there. And then what my next decision is, is, okay, if that's the big bond, then I got to think about, well, when do I tap that fixed income bond? Do I take it at 55 with early withdrawal penalties? And, and, and then that way I don't have to draw down my RSP or my taxable account as much. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a consideration there, or do I keep it to age sixty and not have as steep withdrawal penalties, and then I can start drawing CPP a little bit early, or can I leave it to sixty five and have absolutely no withdrawal early withdrawal penalties, but then I need to draw down my personal portfolio. So I need to run some scenarios about what I'm comfortable with and how much time I want to be managing the portfolio. But those are my considerations now. But I've thought about it to answer your question, but I haven't put a lot of stock on the commuting uh, at this point. We lost the account there for a little while, but he's come back on the show. We, he just blacked out in parcel, so he's back. But I still have one. I have one more question before you get yeah, the same. My router decided to update itself. <laughs> Is it made by a certain uh, fruit named software company? Because they tend to want to update themselves how, all the time. I, I just assume you <laughs> yeah, went for you another know? beer, so I, I mean, I wouldn't know the difference, but. <laughs> <laughs> we were we, that most of the time is what happened. We almost went for scotch without you. We were like, well, if he's not coming back, we're switching to scotch. Yeah, we were that close, actually. That's fair. Uh, That's fair. So, to your point about um, commuting, and I've <laughs> completely blanked now. Accountant, since you're back, it's your turn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just jumping right back in and uh, missed the last five minutes. But uh, yeah, what was I going to say? Oh, man. Well, were you talking to leave in the pension? Yeah, well, we were talking about commuting the pensions and how whether we should or shouldn't or things like that. But there's something super important. I had a really important thing to say. <laughs> I can't believe that you've ever had something really important to <laughs> Two say. Two blank faces staring back at me. I love 6% beer, by the way. Can we have another one? We used to do two beer episodes. Now we're down to one. <laughs> 7.2 gentlemen 7.2 uh, yeah. I'm I'm pretty near done my uh, 65 so I'm I'm ready for another at some point 
yeah, let's let's rebeer. Well, I'm gonna rebeer, and then we'll wrap because I did I w- I did want to follow up that the commuting the discussion about pensions. I, it'll come to me in a moment when I get another beer. Okay, perfect. I will okay. be back. I don't know if you've ever had this, gents. Probably not. I know you're uh, not in this area, but this actually isn't from Ottawa. So this is a uh, refined fool. <laughs> that sounds like the uh, the accountant right there. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Wait, wait. Were you talking about us or your? Oh beer? no, that's the beer this time, actually. <laughs> so this is Zane lost his avocado bag. Oh, seven point six percent. Good night. Ooh. And I'll read you the tasting notes, short and sweet. This champagne-like IPA is pale, dry, bubbly delight. Ooh. Oh. Ooh. That sounds Ooh. very tasty. I'm gonna pour. Get into I'll that you, one. And I'll give you a taste test. Okay. I did actually remember the question I wanted to ask. So Excellent. Can, we can move on after you've uh, had a, you've wet your whistle there. We're going to have to go video one of these days. How is it? How is oh, it? That's, outstand- that's outstanding. Uh, 7.6 champagne-like IPA. Unbelievable. <laughs> Refined fool out of downtown Sarnia. Sarnia, Ontario. Hard, okay. Highly recommend. Well, good thing that guy forgot his avocado bag. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's All excellent. Right. All right. So... Yeah, right. The, the big question, the big question that I remembered. Mm-hmm. Uh, just uh, jumping a little bit further back, you were discussing how you would have to run through the scenarios. And I know we're going to get questions from people saying, well, how do I run through those scenarios? And we are all admitted do-it-yourselfers. I'm not a great spreadsheet person at all. That's not my forte. Mm-hmm. Do you have tools? Are there online tools? Are you a spreadsheet guy? When you say scenarios, do you do it yourself or this whole this whole big uh, retirement drawdown scenario for people may be a time when a fee-for-service person to just give you an overall view might be the right time to do it. Uh, what's your strategy on, on how to run, quote-unquote, run those scenarios? Okay, so your last question is an outstanding question, Mechanic. So my thinking is, yes, I'm a spreadsheet guy and I do run my own scenarios per se. So I've put in, okay, I think I'm going to get, and okay, so I'll back up a little bit. You can go on to Service Canada and check out your CPP contributions to date. So I'd highly recommend folks get a, get a my, you know, CRA login. They've actually done a really good job in, in refreshing the site over the years and making it a little bit more user-friendly. Um, all that said, uh, I would make sure you get a login, go in, you can look at your CPP contributions to date. You can see what your potential, assuming you continue to work at the rate that you do. Um, you can see the potential CPP income that you'll get. Uh, you can also look at the average OAS, so old age security that uh, anybody 65 and older would get, assuming you've lived in Canada and so on and so forth, meet the criteria for 40 years. So you can look at that. So using that as a base, right? Um, then I take my, my pension at work and then I look at the dividend income I have from my taxable, and I look at the, my RSP withdrawal, and there's a few tools you can use. So the v, the VPW or VPM, right? It's the variable percentage withdrawal, uh, VPW. You yeah. can check that out. Take the spreadsheet, put in your round numbers in terms of what you would, would uh, withdraw, so on and so forth. 
And then basically with CPP and OAS as some secure income and any TFSAs or RSPs that you have, throw it into some calculators and and run some math. And what you'll find, I think, is that as long as you understand what your planned expenses will be in retirement, you can kind of see if you have, quote, that enough enough money. But you can also kind of play around a little bit with, okay, well, I'm going to get this from CPP and OAS. I'm going to get this from my pension. You know, maybe I could draw down my portfolio in this type of order. It's not foolproof, but it starts to give most Canadians through, you know, some free tools, some rough ideas about, you know, how much is enough per se for your situation. I would add one caveat though. I would highly recommend, and I'm I'm probably going to go down this road myself a few times, to have a fee-only planner use snap projections or use, um, you know, any other company out there. I'm not, you know, no affiliation whatsoever, but, you know, there's a few that come to mind. Cascades Financial Solutions, like there's a few of them in Canada that are fairly low cost, you can spend a, a little bit of money on, on a free trial or, you know, a few bucks for a month. And what you can do is run some scenarios and see how things shake down. And there's tons of inputs for these things. It'll, it'll ask you, do you have a pension? Do you have an RSP? Do you have TFSAs? Do you have taxables? Do you have a, a you know, a side hobby, an income stream? Um, do you plan to have more money in retirement from an inheritance or other things? All that being said, there are some tools that you can pay for in Canada, which are pretty cool, but I would highly recommend using a fee-only advisor. It'd be a great time, even if you're a DIY investor, to get a second opinion, uh, understand uh, your blind spots, You know, get past some of your own biases. I have biases. The accountant would have biases. The mechanic has biases. We all have biases when it comes to investing in our portfolios. These types of people um, would allow you to explore those a little bit more, unearth those a little bit more, and I would highly recommend people go down that road to consider it. And and there's a you know a, a growing list of people that are in the client's interest, not pushing any particular products or services, which I think is outstanding in Canada. Yeah, I think it's about time more of those fee for service people get the credit they deserve because that's who you want assessing your plan is somebody who's not trying to sell you anything. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think you want the client's interest, you know, best interests at heart, right? And I think that's going to make you much more confident in your plan. And, and and the flip side is if you don't have everything together yet in your 40s or 50s, and most of us don't, we're still trying to figure things out as we go, whether we're DIY investors or or otherwise, these people can coach you. They can give you some examples of income splitting. They can give you examples of things that you probably haven't thought about um, at a deeper level. So I would encourage people to, to seek those out. And again, you can play with the spreadsheets all you want, but at the end of the day, it's always good to understand your biases and maybe a fee-only planner is the right way to, to do it, you know, maybe a couple years or even five years out before semi-retirement and maybe a, a good move on your part to spend a little bit of money, have some trust in the plan and allow you to develop a rapport with somebody that has your best interests at heart. Yeah, I think that's really well said. You you know, a lot of us spent a many decades building up this nest egg that we now plan to live on for our quote-unquote golden years or the best years or whatever you want to call it. And that's probably the inappropriate time to spend a few grand getting making either double-checking your plan or, or getting a really solid plan for for you and your estate and, and make sure everything's in order. Yeah, I mean, I may, uh, just as a footnote to that, I, I, you know, when I do go through that, and I'm, I'm probably going to go through that depending on when the, the show airs here, but I'm probably going to go through it fairly soon just to see what the process is like. I'm curious about how a fee-only planner runs the numbers. I'm, I'm curious to see what kind of uh, tools that they use. I'm, I'm curious about the questions they ask about my debt, my liabilities, my inheritance plan, whatever. Yep. Um, so it'll be cool. And what I'll try to do is um, on my site, 
I'll try to post the, the process, but I'll also try to report as truthfully and honestly as I can the outcome, right? And I Yeah, that's awesome. I do share a lot of personal finance uh you know, soul stuff on my site, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable yeah. at times, but at the same time, I want people to know that I'm a real person and I have the same issues that everybody else does. So, um, <laughs> you know, and, and a lot of people don't do that and that's fine. That's okay too. Right. But, uh, I'm, I'm laughing. I'm laughing at you right now because I check your weekend reading. You put a great post out every week oh, for weekend you, reading it and, and you danced around the reader question of <laughs> tell us how much you have invested. You totally danced around it. I was reading. I'm like, you totally just danced around that question. <laughs> you know, I, I, there's mechanic. There's I'm not pretty on the spot. Mechanic and account. No, that's all good. You know, I find you, depending on the blog or the approach you take, you can, it's very easy to, to, to bury your soul. Right. And who knows who's yeah, reading it and yeah. who's no, who knows what's, who's doing what with the information. So I am a little bit choosy, but you're right. Uh, good on you. I think, I think when I get to the the process of, you know, sharing more of my withdrawal strategy, I think I'm going to be a little bit more forthright. And the reason for it is because I think there's so many people struggling with the asset decumulation side of things, asset Asset accumulation is easy. Yep. You know, it's technically work, easy. Yeah. yeah. Like work hard, save a bit, 10%, 15% of your net income, put it in a low cost fund, maybe buy the odd stock if that's your flavor and, and rinse and repeat for 30 years. Once exactly. you start drawing it down and that's the whole thing that I'm, I'm so um, pleased that we talked about today. How do you do this in a tax efficient manner where you're not going to run out of money? You're going to make sure that your kids or your generational wealth is protected in some cases, maybe you want to, um, you know, do something magical that you've put off for 30 years, like trip around the world or something. How do you make sure you don't run out of money? And those are really hard decisions to make. And so I think asset decumulation is is far more difficult and much more should be written about it over time than, than asset accumulation. And, you know, I'll try to do that on my site and yeah. help other people at the same time. Now that the FI Garage has lubed you up with a couple IPAs, and we've had this great discussion about uh, our, our drawdowns and what could happen, you do some good book reviews on your site. Is there anyone off the top of your head here? And we'll just stick in the show notes. We don't need to go into details on it. But is there a book that you think has been impactful for you that's sort of helped in this stage of the planning? What What is the next phase that I'm going to enter into where I need to start thinking about these drawdown strategies? Yeah, I mean, in terms of asset accumulation, quickly, a millionaire teacher was outstanding. Andrew Hallam is a phenomenal writer. He's uh, he's very uh, gifted um, at his craft, and you know, I've had a lot of emails back and forth with Andrew over the years, and I I want to make a plug to that book in particular because it's really shaped how I invest because he was also a DIY investor and he, he gravitated to low cost indexing and I've started to do a little bit of the same. And a Vancouver Islander, not to mention. Yeah. Yes. Yes, he was. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I mean, that's the thing, right? And I don't know if he has his Canadian uh, residency still or not, but I mean, kudos to Andrew for writing a phenomenal book. So for those that haven't read Millionaire Teacher, uh, highly recommend. Yep. For withdrawal strategies, uh, Fred Vitesse, uh, his name comes to mind. I mean, he's written The Real Retirement um, the Essential Retirement Guide, I think, are a couple of his books, and I think they're outstanding because it does walk you through how much income is enough, where your sources of government pension or fixed income are going to come from. So for Canadians considering uh, semi-retirement or early retirement or any sort of retirement, I would highly recommend Fred Vitesse's book. And then um, Daryl Diamond's book, um, Your Income Blueprint, uh, Retirement Income Blueprint, is an outstanding read. And I, th I think I, yeah. I, I, whether you're 
pre-retirement, in retirement, or even thinking about retirement at some point, um, Gerald Diamond's book is outstanding and he gets into cash wedge and bucket strategies, which we didn't get into this podcast, but you know, happy to come back and chat with you guys about any of that stuff because I think, you know, kudos to Daryl for coming up with a framework that that I think really works for for a lot of folk. Yeah, and I think that's a I mean, I would have loved to gotten into all those subjects. We're already running an hour long here and some of our listeners are two beers deep too and probably not paying attention anymore. So, but uh, yeah, no, that's actually, that's one that I did see on your site and it, it perked my interest and I do need to start adding those to my reading list because we have spent a lot of time with the accumulation style books specifically for Canadians and there's lots of great ones out there, but not enough time in this, like you said, the really challenging and very personal decumulation stage. So thanks a lot. Those are excellent uh, books. We will put those in the show notes. The accountant has been fairly quiet this episode, so I'm going to give him the last word and then Mark will let you wrap up and let our listeners, you can tell them where they can find you. So well, accountant, come on, you got got one good question or what? Well, I, it was. <laughs> it's very difficult to be you know, actively in the episode when your internet keeps dropping. <laughs> and now it sounds like you're outside. It sounds like the wind's blowing, your beard's scratching the mic. I'm not, I had to go downstairs to reset the router and there were kids running around. It's been, uh, it's been a thing. Um, but I did want to talking to two very... people that don't have any children. So we were like, what? Yeah, I, I, it's not computing. It's hey, not computing listen, account, but that's here's... okay. I, I sympathize. I absolutely sympathize. <laughs> Here's the thing. They're not even my kids. Just the nieces and nephews run, causing havoc. Uh, crazy kid. All right. You crazy got, kid. You got anything, anything intelligent that you want to finish off with? Or are you just well, the, uh, the, the, what was it called? The uh, Thirsty Fools? What's the name of the beer? The Thirsty Fools. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Refined Fool. Yeah. Refined. Are you just the refined, refined Fool with, with, with an S for you guys? No, you guys, you guys are awesome, by the way. You guys are awesome. Uh, thanks, Mark. Accountant, fire away. I do want to ask about the cash wedge very mm. quickly if I can. Because I know you've written about that, and I think it's a very powerful strategy. If we could just sum it up quickly, and we might have to go into more detail in another episode. Yeah, on. I mean, I'm happy to come back. Account like, I mean, I think my thinking on this is that um, I want to have basically a year's worth of expenses in cash. You know, I, I I certainly don't have that right now, but I know that the furnace has broken in my past. I know my 16 year old car literally rusted out and I need to buy a newer one sooner than later. Um, so, so life happens. And, and so part of the challenge, I think when you don't have an emergency fund is you end up drawing down more money from your portfolio or, you know, drawing on a line of credit or whatever. And, and, you know, those things ideally um, aren't good things to do. So I think having a cash wedge, i.e. a buffer against what you need to really draw down from your RSP taxable TFSA, what have you, is allowing you that financial flexibility that we've talked about quite a bit where um, you can kind of buffer yourself for those what ifs in life. So my thinking is as I enter semi-retirement, I'll probably have a part-time job, but hopefully with my current employer, but if I don't, maybe, you know, I'll do something else. I thought you were going to be the ball shagger at the driving range. So you get free golf. I, I absolutely might be the course marshal <laughs> down the road. I have no idea, but if they'll, if they'll, uh, if they'll have me, that's great. Free golf is unbelievable. It's like, golf why wouldn't I go work at a, yeah. Why wouldn't I go work at a golf course? Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah. So it, it's, it's for those what ifs in life, right? So um, my modify, and again, if you read Daryl Diamond's book, put it in the show notes, retirement income blueprint, excellent book. And what it'll tell you basically is having a bit of a cash wedge or cash buffer, whether you draw on your cash or whether you draw on GICs and in a downtime and a bear market, what have you, 
having that financial flexibility that we've talked about is is really smart. So my thinking is I'll have a, a year's worth of cash, probably parked in a high interest savings account, or like we said, a mediocre savings account. And uh, average savings yeah, account. Yeah, exactly. Uh, bare bone savings account, whatever they offer today, 2% or otherwise. Uh, yeah, I think what I'll do is I'll, I'll leave that there for the what ifs in life. And then that way, if we have a bad year, I, I've basically got a, a year's worth of cash I can draw down. And I don't care what the equity markets do or even the bond markets do for that matter for a whole year. I can just draw that down and I can ride things out. So my thinking around the cash wedge is I would have a bucket's worth of cash. Uh, bucket strategy, I would have a bunch of uh, dividend paying uh, ETFs or low cost uh, funds riding market returns, and I would have my dividend paying stocks. And so having kind of these pillars, if you will, of cash and stocks and low cost index funds, to me seems really solid in uh, in semi retirement, especially if I have a part time job. So we can talk about it in episode two. But I think having wedges or bucket strategies is super smart and a great way to diversify, but also to hedge risk. Great answer, Mark. Yeah, I think that flexibility is key. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, we'll look forward to episode two, where we drink scotch or bourbon. I'm, I'm pretty easy. I, I could do bourbon or scotch. but I like both of those options. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Mark, again, thank you so much for making time to come on the show. I know you had to give up the back nine today, and uh, for that, I do apologize. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, it's been great having you. And just please fill our listeners in on where they can find you. And Yeah. So uh, thank you so much, Mechanic and Accountant, for uh, the time. Um, it's awesome chatting with you guys and drinking beer. It's great. Uh, keep up the great work, uh, first and foremost. If folks want to find me, um, it's myownadvisor.ca. Uh, it's, a, it's a Canadian blog kind of tilted towards dividend investing and low-cost investing, uh, but like I said, off the top, uh, happy to talk about all subjects, personal finance. I'm pretty active on Twitter. You can find me at, at uh, my own advisor. And I enjoy that, uh, you know, that uh, Twitter machine to post my thoughts, my posts, uh, interact with other people um, that uh, enjoy saving money, investing money, and uh, basically building wealth. And And I call it my, uh, my site, my get wealthy eventually plan. So, uh, you know, Feel free to subscribe and join, and uh, I'm happy to interact with you at any time. Yeah, well, you're, uh, you're a big asset for the, uh, the little per- personal finance community we have in Canada here, and it's a really welcoming community, and a really, uh, I found as we've dove in deeper into it that everybody is so willing to share with all the audience that's out there, and it's just absolutely fantastic. Yeah, thanks. And I, I, you know, I started out with my site as an anonymous blogger and uh, not really knowing what I'm doing, uh, and I don't know if I still know what I'm doing. But I enjoy it, and uh, I'm just happy to drink beer or scotch or talk money and help people basically grow their wealth. And uh, for those on the journey on FI or anything else, uh, just keep at it and, and follow your dreams. Awesome. Beautiful ending there. Uh, Absolutely. We'll, we'll talk again. Cheers. Uh, just the last We're note. Definitely talk again. My, my ghost ship lighthouse brewing was, has been fantastic. And I mean, Mark, you had two separate ones. That's beautiful. Jagged face. Always delicious. It got me through the router meltdown. Yeah. Well, if nobody's ever driven from the east coast of Vancouver over to Tofino, because most people know what Tofino is, they drive past Mount Aerosmith and it's that gorgeous, jagged, rocky, often a little bit of snow on it in the summertime. And it's, uh, it's, it's pretty special. Anyway, thanks again for listening to the FI Garage. We will be back with another episode very soon. 